0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB, Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of deals, mergers, and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. For people that like this podcast, we've got, or I have really, a great book to recommend to you. It's called Blood Sport. It just came out. It's about the history of modern M&A, all the major players that have led to how deals are structured today and why the age of corporate raiders and high-profile investment bankers has come and maybe is now gone or at least waning, uh, this whole world has a history to it. And we're lucky enough to speak to the author, Bob Titleman this week. We'll speak with him in just a few minutes. But first, it's time for What's the Big Deal? And if you're a fan of m a you probably already know that Yahoo is for sale. First round bids are due this week. And while there are some out-of-the-box possibilities that we have already reported on here at Bloomberg, like YP Holdings which is the digital business of the yellow pages, that's the YP, uh, and some private equity firms like TPG that are interested in Yahoo. The favorite to buy Yahoo, and possibly Yahoo's $8.5 billion stake in Yahoo Japan, is Verizon. So joining us today this week is Bloomberg Telecom reporter Scott Moritz. Hi, Scott. Hey, Alex. Thank you for being here. Uh, So I want to have a good discussion this week about why Verizon – is interested in yahoo because even though i am the tech media and telecom m a reporter here and verizon and yahoo are very much companies i focus on i have to admit i am still not 100 percent convinced i understand what verizon is going to do with all of yahoo so maybe you can help me out here scott do you know
2: <laughs> well i can't assume to know but i have talked to enough people who share your uh the, the puzzlement here you know, Yahoo is a mess. Uh, it's been a mess for the better part of a decade. Um, it, you know, the, obviously it was a pioneer. of, of The thing it does is the portal business. And that one kind of slid away. Um, they were unable to capture, you know, some of the other rising businesses. You know, aside from that, you know, there, there are some properties within Yahoo that have some attraction. You know, basically, you know, if I had to boil it down to the primary attraction, it have to be the number of people that use those sites People is a very common, popular uh, metric these days. <laughs> yes, people. Eyeballs. Right.
1: All right, but but look, so, so let's, let's keep going down this path, though, Scott. So Yahoo has a handful of properties that people are interested in, and they've got eyeballs. Why does that make sense for Verizon?
2: So Verizon's story is, is also a, a mix of great opportunities ahead and, and a, a dying business behind it. The dying business is sort of their landline business. Um, they've been trying to get out of that for a while by getting into wireless. As we all know, like it's the biggest wireless company in the country. Wireless is getting very competitive, so they're looking for other areas outside of that to uh, you know, find some re- new revenues. And w- one of those areas is, for them, the mobile video. They, they feel like everyone is eventually going to consume most of their uh, viewing over their cell phone or tablet. Because it's Verizon and it's a network, they have always lost out on that ability to get some of the money that's going through their pipes. You know, They tap into some of the revenue opportunities there. They end up usually just delivering the bits, the the content, connecting the calls, but not getting any piece of that transaction other than the carriage fee. This one opportunity here is probably their best shot at getting into a new revenue stream where they're basically wanting to get advertising into this model.
1: This starts to get into programmatic <clears throat> advertising. In other words, the the metadata, or whatever you want to call it, the data behind the emails, uh, triggers something in an algorithm that suggests that a person would be more interested in a specific ad then another specific ad and that particular ad comes on when the person is watching a Verizon owned video product is that right
2: <laughs> right it, that pretty much encapsulates what they're after it, it's still no one's really solved this particular problem yet but they're getting closer to it it seems you know one of the issues there is the speed at which they can get one of those ads those targeted ads to a user before I think it's been manual, so you just sold a bulk of ads to kind of this age group that one was interested in cars, for example. And then, well, some of that's sort of effective, most of it isn't.
1: So I think I I get that. I so I so Yahoo owns this programmatic ad technology, which AOL does too. Yes. Uh, so that I get that why Verizon would want that, and the idea, from my understanding, is that former AOL CEO, I guess, is he still called CEO of AOL? Even though it's within Verizon, Tim Armstrong would run a combined Yahoo, AOL. And I get that there's a lot of synergies, i.e. overlapping or cost cutting, that would happen if you put AOL and Yahoo together. Here's the thing I'm not sure I quite understand, though. Is there a reason, other than continuing to run an existing, not all that profitable business, if profitable at all, about owning the content of both AOL and Yahoo. So both of these businesses have content. For instance, AOL owns Huffington Post. Now, Huffington Post, I don't know if that makes money at all. In <laughs> fact, I've some sources have told me it does not. And I would imagine some of the Yahoo verticals also on their own don't really make any money. Is there some plan here that Verizon could somehow... Use the non-video content of these sites and do something with it that would enhance the wireless product. Yeah,
2: you know, I have to say, just from watching this from the outside, I this the media part of it, the the publication stuff that comes with these acquisitions makes no sense to me. Oh, you know, because you and I both know that there's no profits in publications necessarily,
1: online publications or print publications <laughs> for that matter. <laughs> just, That's right.
2: It's a very tough business model. So, you know, we initially thought, I think you and I have talked about this, that this would be, a you know, a, a bit of the business that would be spun off. That's right. Sold. That's definitely what I assumed. Right. Yeah. Yet increasingly, they, they, they say that they can find a place for these products. I mean, you know, people are always going to go to the internet for news, I guess, so in one sense they do have a fairly decent news outlet with the Huffington Post and
1: and Yahoo News still the main Yahoo page yep. still gets a lot of eyeballs. Yep. So
2: they they're not ban- abandoning it like you'd think they would or at least hint towards but you know I I think it's all part of the bigger picture. They want to have more places to put ads. And you know these news sites every single news site I know of now has features videos, you know. Right. They, right. They videoize the air. So
1: I guess that's the idea here. And in fact, Ariana Huffington was just on Bloomberg TV. And that is, that's certainly mm-hmm. what she was implying. Although, to be perfectly candid, and Ariana, if you're listening to this, I apologize, <laughs> but it was even hard for you, to, to, for me to understand uh, uh, Ariana Huffington's explanation for exactly how Huffington Post fit within Verizon. But I guess what she was saying was that Huffington Post could eventually turn into a video uh, product, a video news video service, more so than it is now. And if that were to happen, then it could be used as a part of Verizon's mobile video pro- product, which is called Go90. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so, so Go90 is a mobile video service that is now available for Verizon customers. Nope, for anybody. Anyone. Nope, for anyone. It's, it's an app. It's an app, and it's free. Is that right? Zero charge. Yes.
2: Zero and charge. Worth every penny. And right, worth
1: every penny. And you can imagine the amazing content you get for a free video service. Uh, I, I, I mean, look. I guess YouTube is is free, and and right. there is some good content. There's also some not so good content. And I would imagine the same is true for Go90. Uh, that where there's some good content and not good content. I have used it a little bit, but I have not figured out why I want to use that over the. Many video services I already have. Is there a reason I should?
2: Yeah, well, you're not a teenager I see.
1: You're not 12 years old, or so, 15 for that so, matter. So, the, so that's the target market here, 12 to 15? Very much so. And okay. and,
2: and they're they're onto this. They, they've seen how much activity that YouTube gets in its channels. It it does seem that Verizon's not, I mean, let's face it, Go90 has not been a great success. And, and you always wonder, you know, when are they going to just come up with the... Come out with the numbers to say you know this is how many subscribers we have, and they, they haven't done it, and they, it doesn't look like they're going going to. Always
1: a good sign when a company is withholding <laughs> the bare numbers of subscribers, right?
2: And I don't get the sense that they're backing away at all from this direction.
1: Well, buying it. Yahoo seemingly would be based on what we just talked about would be a step in that direction toward mobile video. Yeah. Yeah. All right, look. Uh, that that was as enlightening as I think I'm going to get. Honestly, Scott Moritz, Bloomberg Telecom reporter on Verizon's quest to buy Yahoo, something we should be finding more about over the next few weeks. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Alex. Our guest this week is the author of the new book Blood Sport: The History of How Modern M and A Began. By the way, Bloodsport is also the name of a Jean-Claude Van Damme, 1988 movie, great movie. He was also founder and editor-in-chief of The Deal magazine for 14 years, uh, which gave him the foundation to write this book, Bob Titleman Bob, welcome to Deal of the Week. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us. So let me start with, with, uh, with an easy one here. Why did you write this book?
3: I spent a lot of time uh, covering M&A in one form or another, or editing M&A stories, or thinking about M&A. Uh, it, I was at the deal for, as you said, uh, for quite a long time. Uh, we started. To, uh, I was the I was the founding editor there, but before that, I had been at Institutional Investor magazine, and I was the Wall Street editor, and I did some other things there, and I I had my involvement in M and A, and so it seemed uh, the deal got sold uh, to the Street dot com, and uh, I had some free time, and I had time to think about things for the first time in quite a while, and. That's what emerged.
1: So, before we sort of get into the book, maybe I'll let you do this first. Give sort of like the elevator pitch about like what is this book about?
3: I think uh, there's a there's a sort of uh, a way of thinking about the uh, beginning of what we what I think of as the modern era of M&A in the 80s. That uh, most people think of the big deals. They think of so spectacular hostile all uh, barbarians at the gate, barbarians at the gate, and and yet I I had always known that there were there were there were strange questions i had about some of the uh, what it seemed to me be strange because i couldn't answer them easily about how this whole thing began why it began it was an unbelievably disruptive period uh, a kind of disruption that we haven't seen since and the disruption was more fundamental than just a bunch of deals and a bunch of companies taken over it was it was fundamental to the to the governance of the of the way the companies were run we live with all that today and and so i had a lot of questions and and i began to uh, I began to wonder, you know. I began to so I began to sort of explore some of the early uh, uh, things that happened in the earlier days, the mid seventies, even in the late sixties, that sort of led up to this.
1: It, it, it reads, first of all, it's a really enjoyable book, uh, very easy to read, similar to *Barbarians at the Gate* in a way. Although this book is not as much about a specific deal as it is about the history of MA. and in, in many ways, it reads sort of like. A history book, or like a David Halberstam book, or something like that, where you sort of go through the different characters that are the founders, more or less, like the founding fathers of modern MA. And I was curious if maybe part of the reason for writing this book is that some of these people, you know, Marty Lipton is 84, Henry Kravis is 72, Felix Royatan's 87. Was part of the thinking that some of these people are getting a little long in the tooth, and now's the time to write this while they're still alive and can be interviewed.
3: Well, many of them uh, unfortunately have died, uh, and many have
1: died. That's right,
3: and and so there, it, that wasn't a direct, that wasn't a, an immediate thing, but it became apparent as I was working on it that I should hurry because. Uh, i mean uh, yes they were they were getting old, I mean Marty Lipton is still very active, but, absolutely, but some of the rest of them i I had interviewed uh with a colleague at the deal in the last few years of of my time there. We had interviewed uh, Joe Flom at Scadinar, who just
1: recently passed away a few years ago
3: yeah, and he, he
1: about
3: eight months later he was he had he died and and he was and it was an incredible interview, i mean only in the sense that he was just an incredible character. So the, so the the character is more of a question in this book of how do you take this material, which can be arcane and can be complex, and how do you make it readable? And it's, and, and it was done with profiles.
1: Uh, one of the previous guests on this show, Steve Lippin, talked about how he believed the era of swashbuckling dealmakers is over and not coming back. And I'm curious, do you agree with that?
3: That's an, that's an interesting comment because it it sort of lurks at the heart of this book, which is... Why do we have these cycles? These are cycles that we see, in, 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 not just in, in, in deals and in a number of deals, but in the way we think about deals. And what we see in this period is this cycle from a, sort of a stakeholder model of thinking about companies, where boards have the responsibility to balance off a lot of interests, to, to to the shareholder-centric model that we have today, where the only interest that matters really is shareholders. I think if you look at what's going on right now and it's going looking in the near future, he's exactly right. Does that mean it'll always be like this? I think I think he probably it, it, it won't be. It'll it'll change. You can you know, and I had I've had this debate with a couple of people at the deal for many years. We used to argue about this all the time. There is a routinization that's taken place in MA and 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 I write about it in, in the last few chapters which is many of the permutations of deal-making have been resolved. You know, we don't have the 80s anymore. We have legal precedent now for a lot of things that can happen. And so it seems like it's more of a process, and, it's, and it's no, there's less hostility, and everyone sort of accepts certain aspects of it. But that doesn't mean that underneath the surface that things are change, not not capable of changing.
1: Sure, and I think I, I don't want to misquote Steve. I think that it is yeah. certainly possible that he thinks that someday yeah. that uh, it, it may come back. I may have been too harsh by saying it will never come back. Uh, I, but I'm curious, do, do you think that's a good thing or a, or a bad thing? What are the ramifications of, of that?
3: I think on the surface it's a good thing. You know, there's less hostility, and people. Uh, there's not the kind of disruption. But I would also argue that Part of the reason we have this routinization and part of the reason that we have less hostility is, is that the governance system has narrowed to such an extent the, and, and such large parts of it that used to exist have been sort of erased from the, from, the, from the equation that you're dealing with, you know, when you pay your senior managers in stock and you make them shareholders – you create this sort of monoculture of shareholders and managers that is a sort of oligarchy. I mean, you, you don't have and, – and, 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 and when people say, well, what about the unions or what about customers, what about workers, period, they're sort of written out of the equation because they're not part of it. So when things, terrible things happen uh, or, or, or 2008 occurs – the first thing that happens is you know you get you get cost cutting across the board. you cut r and d, you cut capital expenditures, and you cut workers. But you also buy back shares. So you have that paradox.
1: So this leads really what to what I think is sort of the nut concept of this book, and maybe really the the nut concept of this show in many ways, although we haven't really firmly engaged it. Uh, so I want to do it now with you. And you hear it more and more recently than at least I think I've heard in my modern lifetime, which is, is capitalism fundamentally flawed? Is there a structure here, and you see it really in MA where the moneyed interests are served over the employee, and it leads to a result that is not beneficial for capitalism? Or... Is our structure actually set up for the benefit, uh, in the end, of America?
3: I would hesitate to talk about capitalism personally, because because I think it's a much bigger subject than just this governance. Even gov- corporate governance, you know, how companies are run, is not synonymous with capitalism. But <laughs> there's a but. I mean. There are flaws in any kind of governance system, Poli- you know, a national political governance system, as we see today, and with, the, with the, some of the things that, go- that are going on, and with uh, this corporate uh, governance system. I mean, there's a there's a wonderful set of essays, actually, uh, one in particular that Bill Allen, who was the chancellor of the Chancery Court in Delaware in the late 80s, who was probably the single most important figure in Delaware that sort of brought about this, this routinization, of, of or, or at least a, a sense of what the rules of the game were in M&A. And he wrote a, he wrote a piece after he retired. He was teaching at NYU. He wrote a piece about, that, that, about this sort of pendulum swing of systems. And I think what you see in these governance concepts is very similar to what you see in markets, which is that they swing, they're cyclical, and that they, excesses over time come to the surface. And I think one of the excesses is a narrowing of the sharing of the benefits and of the gains of these things. I, I really do believe that you sort of traded in the '90s and, and, and afterward, you know up until the current moment, you've traded a sort of a routinization of the system and a, and a less hostile system. For a much narrower set of gains you 've got uh, again you 've got rising inequality underneath the surface there you 've got a lot of issues that are larger than just this i mean inequality is much larger than just this but i think there's something you know, that 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 you create these you know these these all these systems have flaws, and the shareholder system and this is the question I asked at the beginning to myself which is it was clear it had flaws. Well, how would you know? How did those flaws? How do we paper over those flaws to keep it going?
1: Right. The name of the book is called Blood Sport, and I'm assuming the reason you named it Blood Sport was that there was at least an era in time where the where there were players involved in M&A that were treating it like a game. Yes. To, to yes. some degree. Yes. And that sort of gets back to the question about is the swashbuckling investment banker era beyond us? Do you feel like because look, last year was a record year for M&A yeah. volume. Do you feel like M&A is still treated as a game or are we moving away from that?
3: I don't know if it's a game. I think for some of the folks who practice it at the highest level, the best lawyers in the world, the best journalists in the world, the the, the people who really have a, a a mastery of something, it is a game. You know, it's always a game because they're so good at it. And, and, and it's like professional athletes. They, they, they play a game. But yet they make a lot of money, and they have very successful – they can have very successful careers. It is not a game that's, that is as much fun as it used to used be to for be. these folks right. and, and because it's gotten routine. It's – you know, at the beginning of these things, you can sit down with your lawyers and your bankers, and the laundry lists are there. And now that doesn't mean, by the way, we have gotten more routine about the execution of, of M&A deals. But that doesn't necessarily mean we've gotten any better about the executing the deal themselves as an operational matter. And there are studies out there. They're all over the place, but a lot of deals don't work out, particularly in markets like this that are hot.
1: Yep. Several, of the, uh, certainly recent ones that I've read that say, you know, as much as 80% of M&A leads to the destruction of value rather than the creation of value.
3: I like to argue. So I, you know, I, I'll like to take the other side of that a little bit. Only an 80% is a big number. M&A is a, is a is a risky venture. And 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 then you ask yourself, well what is the option in certain times and certain periods and certain situations for companies? And there is no option. You know, if you need to grow and you're not growing organically, there is a justification for M and yeah. Absolutely, as much as we see, maybe not.
1: And one of those, the, one of the major flaws with a study like that is it doesn't show the counterfactual. Yes. Well, if yes. the deal hadn't happened, what would have been the uh, eventual market right. loss?
3: Just you mentioned counterfactuals. I one of the things I stumbled across in the middle of doing this is is the number of the sheer number of counterfactuals that exist in this thing. You know, when people try to justify M positive or negative, they always engage in counterfactuals. You can't run history backwards and, and do it again. So, uh, you know, for all the people who say, you know, the world is a better place because of the 80s, it's a counterfactual. You know, it, it's it's a what if, you know, because you don't know what the other side would have been.
1: You, you talk about a bunch of different sort of landmark deals in the book uh, that paved the way for modern M&A. Is there one in your mind that you would point to to say... This is the crux deal that sort of laid the foundation for how modern M and is done.
3: Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> that's a hard one. I sort of end the book with a with a very, with a detailed excursion into the into the Paramount uh, Time Warner deal that was uh, in I guess eighty nine. That, that that sort of culminated in in. Uh, The law never changes. I mean, the law never stops. It's never. It continues to evolve, and precedent changes. But it's so interesting because of the cast of characters involved in those companies. The size of those companies, the fact that it was it was coming, just as the '90s were really or the '80s were really ending, Milken was you know in trouble. There were all kinds of uh, uh, it was peaking out. Uh, it's my version of, of the RJR and uh, the right. Nabisco uh, private equity deal. The legal argument that decided that case in in two in two sets of. Uh, in two cases, one in the Chancery Court in Delaware, then and in, in in the Supreme Court in Delaware, was so bizarre and so intricate that you had these enormous companies uh, a decision made to, to allow the sale to go through finally, and and I challenge anyone uh, who's not in the law, and I challenge some corporate lawyers to explain the takeover jurisprudence that that took place there. It was it, it does make sense when you go deeply into it. But in terms of trying to say to, to a public, you know, why are these companies merging or not merging, it's, it's, it was very difficult to explain. And I think that's one of the lessons from the 80s, too, which is I think Delaware was a hero in this period. Delaware stepped in where no one else would. To try to to try to produce some so the, order, the
1: Chancery Court of, of of Delaware and the
3: Delaware Supreme Court. I mean, although the, and and these two courts, you know, sort of had there was a tension between them. They were they were looking for different things. They 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 argued between each other to a certain extent. But as a judiciary, it stood in where the regulators, where the politicians, policymakers did not. But yet, you know, it's really hard to go out there and say, you know, we should do hostile takeovers because of X, Y, and Z because no one will understand what X, Y, and Z is. It involves very almost theological distinctions in in coercion and the autonomy and rational ability of boards to be rational. And I, it took me, I mean, it took me months to to untangle it. I mean, and I'm not a lawyer, so that maybe that's why. But uh, so I, I view that as a sort of culmination of the 80s. And after that, you know, the, the, the dirty little secret of the 80s is that it ended not because of Delaware. Delaware's influence was longer term than that. It, 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 you know, over the long term, Delaware was very important. And it ended because of the recession. Recessions end these things. And uh, you just didn't. You weren't going to have, junk bond. You know, Milken went to jail. Drexel collapsed. Junk bonds imploded. Uh, the the economy, you know, went into recession. And and deal making, particularly in the private equity side, stopped. And everybody said, "This will never come back." And about three days later, of course, it was back. <laughs> but which is another lesson of right, it.
1: sure. Now we're all just waiting for the more recent financial yes. collapse to come back, too, as the economic <laughs> cycles continue. Uh, well, the book is great, uh, and, and and listeners of this podcast particularly, I think, will enjoy picking it up. Really, if you're a religious listener of this podcast, this book is right up your alley. Uh, it's called Blood Spore. Is it available now? Can it is available. It? Available yes. now. Bob Tidelman, author of the book. Thank you for joining us.
3: Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: So that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed those conversations. If you're listening on iTunes or a podcast app, please take a minute to rate and review the show. I'd love to hear your feedback. Or just tweet at me, at Sherman4949. Scott Moritz, who you heard earlier, he's at Moritz Dispatch. See you here next week.